0: Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. You know, we put uh, the passages on the screen. That helps us uh, move along as we go through Scripture, but we always want you to have your Bibles with you, open in front of you. You can't take the screens home, but you can take your Bibles home, and you can mark and make sure you have God's Word in front of you as we go through this. A little context after delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt, God provided them instructions on how to live. They saw his power. They saw everything he did with the Red Sea, with manna, with with, with the food, with water. Uh, They saw that he was a powerful God who could deliver them. And now he says, you're my people. I chose you from all the peoples of the world. You're it. Says the same thing to us, doesn't he? And here are my instructions for you. I love you so much that I have special instructions for you. These instructions we see not only in... uh, We've seen some actually already in Genesis. We'll see one more tonight. Uh, Exodus, we see them. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the name of the book is Second Law Giving. So we see them throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. But they're summarized in what we call the Ten Commandments, or the Greek word for that is the Decalogue, the Ten Words. These Ten Commandments are the basis for the moral law of Western civilization. However, they were written to help us be more than just good citizens. They were written to show us our sinfulness. They were written to show us our need for a savior. They were written to show us our need for the enabling power of God to obey. The laws are a standard that, that not one of us can, can, we can't jump the bar. They're too high. They remind us, you can't jump the bar. You need someone to jump the bar for you. His name is Jesus. And you need help in obeying these. You need to obey these laws. You don't just get rid of them since you have a relationship with Christ. Grace doesn't mean you don't obey what God has for you. But you need help in doing that. The law was never meant as a way of salvation. Good works are never meant as a way of salvation. The basis of the law was always grace. It has to be a free gift of God. We can't jump the bar, right? The means of salvation has always been faith. And the object of salvation, has, whether you're in the Old Testament or New Testament, has always been Jesus. You're looking forward to the coming Messiah who's going to deliver you. Or you're looking back to the Messiah has come and delivered us. The Ten Commandments that we're going through are divided into two parts. The first four are vertical, our vertical relationship with God, the second six are horizontal, our relationship with each other. So far, we've considered the first four, a reverence for God, no God but but God, that's the first commandment. Second commandment, don't worship a true God in the wrong way, no idols. The third commandment, don't treat God's name in a frivolous manner, don't take God's name in vain. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, and we talked about Jesus now being our Sabbath rest. We, we celebrate the Sabbath every day. Jesus lives within us. Last time we started the second table or the second part, respect for others, honor your father and your mother. And tonight we want to go through three uh, commandments regarding murder, regarding adultery, regarding stealing. Let's look at uh, commandment number six, you shall not murder. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, the first four, dealing with God, that was a little challenging. I get it, you know, have no other God before me, and that, that's a tough one. I struggle with that. And I even honoring, when we get to the horizontal ones, even honoring your father and your mother, you know, as we unpacked that last week, that has some challenges to it. But I got this one. I have never killed anyone. I am not a murderer. Well, that's good. That makes the rest of us feel a lot better, uh, being here with you tonight. However, every commandment has several layers. And this commandment of murder, we could say, has three layers. Murder of the hand, murder of the head, and murder of the heart. So let's think about those three as we look at this command. The basis for this command, there are two parts to that. First of all, it is that God is sovereign. And secondly, that man is made in the image of God. As a sovereign creator, God is the author of life. He is the one who writes the first chapter and the last chapter of our existence. And we are never to interfere with the life that God has given by taking it away. Murder, whether it is uh, premeditated, whether it comes out in anger, whether it comes out in drunkenness, or whether it's just the wickedness of people, murder is playing the role of God. And so not only does it break this, this commandment, the sixth commandment, but it breaks the first commandment, no other gods before me. So God is sovereign. That's the first basis uh, for this command. Secondly, the second part of that is man's made in the image of God. This this means that man is a cr- the crowning creation of God, different than everything else in all creation. We uh, we share in God's attributes. The the attributes we share in are called communicable or transferable attributes. So we share in life. God is a living being. We have life as well. God is an eternal being. We had a beginning, but we have no end. We're going to live for eternity, either in heaven or in hell. Uh, God is truth. And that truth, Scripture tells us, is written on our hearts. We we have this idea, tainted by sin for sure, but this idea of right and wrong. We have wisdom. We have the capacity to learn. We have the capacity to love. We have the capacity for justice, or we have a sense of justice. Again, tainted by sin, imperfect and incomplete, but every person is made in the image of God. That makes every person, young or old, Rich or poor, black or white, every race, every color, every creed made in the image of God. Life is a gift from God from the moment of conception, the very moment of conception until the last breath. And that's why God says clearly, as a command, you shall not murder. You shall not interfere with my gift of life. and the Jewish law given by God, in Israel's civil law, remember there was a civil law, a ceremonial law, and the moral law. The Ten Commandments were in the moral law. In the civil law of Israel, there were 18 crimes that could receive the death penalty. And murder was one of them. Even before the law was given, back in Genesis chapter 9, Whoever sheds, uh, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. That's the basis for this. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, now we're in the New Testament, that governing officials have been placed there by, by God's authority, by God's sovereign authority, and have the power over life and death for the one who practices evil. Now certainly, there are times when life can be taken in Scripture, self-defense, defending the life of another person, or the defense of one's country. Again, we see that throughout the Old Testament. But this command speaks to, to premeditated, aggressive taking of another's life. And this would include suicide, the taking of one's own life. So, when a person takes his or her life, they are placing themselves in the position of God. I do want to say, though, however, although it is a selfish sin and leaves so much pain in the wake, it's not the unforgivable sin for the believer. As one has said, the believer who commits suicide crashes uninvited into the presence of God and is accepted by the Father. There is no sin that Jesus hasn't paid the penalty for. So there are murders of the hand. But there's another layer. Murder of the head. These are decisions to not get involved in the lives of others. Jesus describes this aspect of murder in the, in the story of the Good Samaritan. You guys know the story, right? The, the guy is laying on the ground, beaten, left for dead, and two religious guys walk by, right? A priest and a Levi, and what do they do? They make a conscious decision... Leave the guy in the middle of the road. Let him die. We're not going to get involved. And they, they when Jesus tells the story, he's descriptive. They, they, they have to walk over here to, to get to avoid the guy, and they walked around him. Jesus describes that as, in essence, murder of, of, of the head, making a decision to let someone die when you have the capacity to help them. In his larger catechism, Martin Luther said this, this command is violated, murder, this command is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. If you send a person away naked, when you could clothe them, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and don't feed them, you let him starve. And so this gets a little more deep. Than just murder of the hands, the murder of the head as well, and it's also murder of the heart. Turn with me to Matthew, chapter five, uh, look at verse twenty-one. Remember, every command is—all uh, uh, these ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament, except for that one. Remember the Sabbath, because Jesus is, as we talked about, is our Sabbath rest. Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it said to the people long ago, what we're studying now, Jesus said, you've heard it said in those Ten Commandments, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The term raka and fool are both terms of abuse. They are terms of murder of the heart, anger, rage, bitterness, contempt, prejudice. There are many ways you can destroy a person without taking his or her life. Gossip, slander, reckless words pierce like a sword, Scripture says. Martin Lloyd Jones. Uh, a pastor uh, back in uh, England in the, in the 1960s said, Killing does not only mean destroying life physically, it means still more trying to destroy the spirit and the soul, destroying the person in any shape or form. So slander when you go after a person, when you, when, when you want them dead, when you want them hurt, when your words go after them to hurt them. To destroy their reputation, to destroy their spirit. Murder. Jesus says, Moses says, God says, how about that? God says, you must not murder. With your hands, with your head, or your heart. Commandment number seven you shall not commit adultery. So I saw this cartoon where Moses was coming down from the mountain. He's carrying two tablets of the law. His hair is disheveled. He's looked completely worn out, and the people are waiting for him. And the caption under the picture, Moses was speaking, and and he said, well, I got him down to 10, but adultery is still in. There are many believers. There are many believers who act as if adultery is not in. There are many believers who live as if adultery has been negotiated away. I'm not going to spend a lot of time dealing with the obvious prohibition of this commandment. Marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. Any sexual encounter outside of that covenant is called adultery. By the way, Everyone today likes to call it an affair. That sounds kind of mysterious and intriguing, even inviting, right? An affair. Let's call it for what it is. It's called adultery. That's what God calls it in his word. In, Matthew chapter, or in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, is a passage of scripture that deals with the... Uh, the Covenant of marriage. It's repeated by Christ in the Gospels, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. And the passage says this for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The covenant is between a man and a woman committed to each other for life. A man and a woman committed to each other for life. Committed to live in the bounds of intimacy only with each other. And adultery adultery breaks that precious, intimate, physical agreement of that human relationship. So much so that it's the only biblical grounds for divorce. Matthew chapter 5 verse 32. But go back to thirty one. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become adulteress, and anyone marries, divorce woman commits adultery. This is serious stuff in God's word. There are many verses, there are many, many verses we could go here, but let me give you two. Proverbs chapter 6:32, the man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Hebrews 13:14, a passage that I use in every marriage uh, wedding ceremony I do. Hebrews 13:4 says, Marriage should be honored above all, the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adultery. The adulterer, rather, and the sexually immoral. Adultery produces a, a, a ripple effect of pain to the to the spouse, to the church. It wreaks havoc in the church. The witness of Christ to your children. When a father falls, here's what one writer says. Kent Hughes says this. Infidelity tells a child, your mother is not worth much and your father is a liar and a cheat. Furthermore, honor is not nearly as important as pleasure. In fact, my child, my own satisfaction is more important than you. And there are other layers of this commandment. Sex outside of marriage. Young adults, sex outside of marriage falls under this Come in. Sexual relationship to be man, wife, and a marriage. Fornication, it's called in Scripture. Uh, sexual immorality. And then there's this other insidious layer that Jesus hits head on. Jesus said that adultery is not just a matter of the body, but it's a matter of the heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus said, you heard it said that shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her and his heart, and vice versa. The word lust there means to desire, long for, crave, and obsession for something. I was, as I was studying, I was reading this week, someone said, uh, uh, love desires the person. Love desires the, per- the person. Lust desires the portion. Job called it a fire that consumes. Now remember, Job is written around the same time, same time period as the, as the patriarchs, Genesis. So that means Job did not have the printed page, right? He didn't have computers, he didn't have smartphones. He didn't have Netflix. And yet, he still said it's a fire that burns, fire that consumes. Job 31.1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Job, without any billboards, without any stuff that we are tempted by today, It's not something that comes from out there. Sin always comes from where? Right here. John Calvin said this, Let him who does not touch a woman not flatter himself, as if he could not be accused of immodesty, while in the meantime his heart burns with lust. Three things here before we go to the the last command. There's three practical things. I want to be careful with these, but we need to talk about them. First of all, if you're married, don't deprive each other sexually. There's, there's, absolutely, there's absolutely no excuse for adultery. Absolutely no excuse. I'm going to say that one more time, okay? There is absolutely no excuse. And when couples are not fulfilling the intimacy that Scripture tells them to do, in 1 Corinthians 7, um, the temptation is going to be heightened. So don't deprive each other sexually. Men and women, place the proper guards around your life. Computers, smartphones. I know know many of you are professionals who work with the opposite sex in, in business. Make sure you make sure... You place the proper boundaries in, in your life. at our staff. The, we have uh, we have tremendous. Uh, Laura Ankram leads our uh, women's ministry. And so any woman who wants to meet, uh, we might meet one time. But Laura is in my meetings a lot of times in those meetings. And she'll take that. We don't meet alone unless uh, doors or our windows are open, our blinds are up. And we do not drive together in a car, with a man and a woman, anywhere. We're going we're gonna to put the boundaries up. And we're going to make sure that those boundaries stay. Well, you just don't trust your staff? No. We don't trust each other <laughs> when it comes to that. We're going to put boundaries up before it happens. Because these things blow up families and they blow up churches. Sure, we trust each other, but we also know our hearts. I only had one guy. I know my heart. I only had one guy look at me and and, and talk about adultery and say, that could never happen to me. And I walked out of his office feeling like a worm. That could happen to me. But you know what? It did happen to him. So put those guards up. You think you're standing. If you think you're above that, then you need a wake-up call. Because you are not, women. I just want to say this. I want to be very, very careful with this one. All right. Depending on how you take it, I may not even use it tomorrow morning. But uh. so, so women, men are wired to be sexually stimulated visually. So help us out, okay? dress appropriately and have your daughters dress appropriately. 1 Timothy two nine, I want women to dress modestly with, with decency and propriety. I'm not accusing anyone of ever doing anything intentionally. But please be considerate as to how men are wired. And uh, I know it's, it's our issue and it's our responsibility. And we've got to bounce our eyes and all the stuff that we read about, and you could dress in 14 layers of clothing, head to toe, and would still have the problem. But current styles are way below 14 layers, aren't they? And I'd be real careful with that. We're not cultish. We're not telling people how to dress. But I know the last thing, women, you would want to do is to cause a man to stumble. So uh, it's our issue. It's our problem. It's our sin if we do it. but but prayerfully help us out as we do community together, as we do ministry together, as we interact together. Okay, one more thing. Commandment 8. You shall not steal. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? So God owns everything. Everything we have is a gift from God. So don't take stuff that God has given someone else. If God owns everything, and everything we have is a gift from God, if you steal something from someone else, who are you ultimately stealing from? God. Don't steal from your employer. Don't steal time from your employer. By the way, you know this, but... But stealing time from our employer takes place if we are doing spiritual tasks on the job. For your witnessing during company time. It's a great thing to do, but they probably are not paying us to witness unless we're working at a church or something, right? There's a guy I know, a strong believer, and he worked for a strong believer. So these guys, they wanted the message of the gospel to go forth. But the problem was the, the employee... He would he would, instead of doing the sales calls he was supposed to do, he'd go off and find a restaurant someplace and do a Bible study. Well, that's that's stealing. One person said, All it takes for us to break this commandment is to waste one hour at work. You say, you know what? That's that's a little too much, isn't it? No, that's the reminder. The bar is too high for us. And only by God's help can we obey what he's calling us to do. I believe Christians should be the very best employees, don't you? They should be the best employees. They should be using their time wisely. They should be doing all of it to honor God. So, we can steal from each other. We can steal from our um, employer. And then there's one other person we can steal with. We can steal from, right? We can steal from God. We steal from God when we don't use the gifts he's given us. Every believer, 1 Peter 4.10, every believer has at least one gift and should what? Use it. Administrate it in its various forms. So God's given you this gift. He wants you to use it. You don't use it. Stealing from him. We can still God when it comes to using money inappropriately. Two passages here. Uh, Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. God is talking and he says, will a man rob God? God says, yeah, you rob me, but you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in in, in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Now, I'm not talking about, that's not prosperity theology. If you give, God's going to give you tenfold back. That is not the deal. But the principle of the passage is pretty straightforward, isn't it? You don't give God what's rightly, due him tithes and offerings. God says, you're robbing me. Malachi 3:8 through 10. Proverbs 3:9. 9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Again, not prosperity theology. The principle there is clear, right? honor the lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops so what does that mean practically for us you don't wait till the end of the month to see what you might have left over for god because anything's good enough for him right leftovers are good enough for him you honor god with first fruits from the top and then you appropriately budget for money the rest of the way. So murder, adultery, stealing. Pretty, pretty light topics, huh? Murder, adultery, stealing. Not one of us in here are innocent. We haven't killed with our hands. We have with our hearts. If we haven't committed the act of adultery, we have in our heart. We're all thieves, robbing others, wasting time, sometimes not using our gifts, robbing God. Murder, adultery, stealing. So there was one man in Scripture who did them all, in one series of sinful acts. He stole a man's wife, committed adultery with her, and then what he did? He had her husband killed. He wasn't a wicked man. He wasn't a pagan. In fact, God himself described this man as a man after My own heart. If these sins can happen to David, they can happen to us, can't they? And the best part is, if God can forgive David of these sins, then certainly he forgives us. Turn with me to Psalm 51. As we wrap this up, Right after David went through that series of sins, he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And, uh, and finally, probably after about, well, the baby was born, so at least nine months, maybe a year later, after living with those sins in an unrepentant state, David confessed. In his prayer of confession is Psalm 51. I'm going to read through it. And uh, I I just offer this psalm to you to read through it on your own as well. Again, as I said, we're all guilty of these. And so how do we go to God and ask for his forgiveness? Because we don't want to continue in those sins. And when we do sin, we want to go and... Confess those sins before him. So after this series of sins, David prayed in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love and according to your great compassion. I love the word unfailing love. It's the Hebrew word rekom. It means according to the covenant you have with me. You never break that covenant. And great compassion, uh, in the Hebrew, is a word also used for a mother's womb. What's what's more compassionate and, and nourishing and caring than that? David says, according to those things, your intimate care for me, your covenant you have with me, please have mercy on me and blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to wash me. David said, For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Boy, that's the truth, isn't it? You can't, when you're a believer and you sin, you can't run from that. That's the Holy Spirit convicting us. Telling us to come back home. Calling us we're on the wrong path. And then in verse 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only have I sinned. Well, David, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah, her husband? No. David says, I know I hurt them terribly. I killed Uriah. I had him killed. But ultimately, all sin is against you. I'm starting out at the top against you, and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. We don't have time to unpack all that, but that simply means this. Even when God graciously forgives us, there are consequences to sin. And David's saying, whatever the consequences are, I'm not going to cry foul. I'm not going to say, oop, that was too much for that sin. David says, You are approved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. There is a passage about original sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. David is saying, I've always been a sinner. And you desire, in contrast to that, you desire truth in the inward parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Then David says, I can't do this on my own. I can't forgive myself. So I need you to cleanse me. I am dirty. I'm guilty. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. We can relate to the next verse because we know how how sin just weighs us down, and it's heavy, and it's convicting. And David says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. I, 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 I want to I have joy again. Walking around with this sin. It's killing me. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. And then look at 10. Create in me a pure heart. I need reform. Create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me. So so forgive me, and then create in me this new heart that desires obedience, and then renew a steadfast spirit in me so that I will be committed to obey, so I'll build those things around me. I'm going to sin again, but help me, Father, to build those things around me so sin doesn't become the habit of my life. Verse 11 don't cast me from your presence or don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This was a fear of David in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was only put on certain people for certain times and could be taken away. And David had seen this happen in his predecessor, right? Saul. And he saw what it did to Saul. And he's saying, please don't do that. Now, in the, as a New Testament believer, God's never going to do that. He's never going to take the Holy Spirit from us. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then David says, here's the deal. God, if you do all those things for me, then I'm going to be a witness to you about your forgiveness and your restoration and your recreating a clean heart in me and how you are the one who can forgive sins. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back from you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. David said, if I could go just kill a, a lamb and sacrifice that thing, if that's all it took and then I could walk away, if it was just this outward stuff, I would do it in a second. But you don't delight in sacrifices, but you, take, you don't delight in burnt offerings. But the sacrifices of God are what? Repentance, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. That's what it comes down to for believers, right? We're sorry for our sin, and we want God to forgive us.